First Samuel chapter 30, and we will commence to read here from the first verse in the chapter. And I trust that even as we read the Word of God together, that the Lord will speak to our hearts. The, the reading of God's Word is central to our public worship. And it's not something that we do just as a matter of formality. God speaks through His Word. And how important it is to therefore read His Word. First Samuel chapter 30, and commencing to read from the verse 1, please. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fear recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men that were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, two hundred abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. And they found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David, and gave him bread, and he did eat. And they made him drink water, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. For he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days are gone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah, and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God, that thou wilt neither kill me, nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them, save four hundred young men which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. Amen. And we trust and pray that the Lord will bless to our hearts a public 
reading of his own precious inspired word. Let's just briefly, with God's word open, bow together in prayer and ask that the Lord will speak afresh to each one, that the Lord will speak to each one of our hearts afresh, that we might hear from the Lord this evening. Heavenly Father, we want to thank thee this evening for thy precious word. We thank thee that the entrance of thy words giveth light. We bless thee tonight for the scriptures of truth, the oracles of God, this more sure word of prophecy. How we bless thee for the word of God that liveth and abideth forever. Father, it is our prayer that it will please thee to speak to each and to every one. Lord, we all need to hear from God. Lord, there's not a time when we open thy word that we don't need to hear. We always need to hear thy voice. And Lord, we ask that thou wilt speak clearly, personally, directly to each one. Do, God, that thou wilt come, work in our hearts and lives, draw out our souls after thee. Father, we pray that thou wilt speak mightily. O, make much of Christ, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Tonight, we're going to consider this story, this account of the rescuing here of this young Egyptian man in the field. And can I say that even as we consider, and what we're going to look at tonight, and as we consider this story, it is most certainly a wonderful and tremendous picture of the gospel, of the mercy and the grace of God, of the Lord moving and working in the life of an individual. Of course, the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation is all about Christ, who Jesus Christ is, what Jesus Christ has done, and praise God for his person and for his work. And here in our portion, we will find and we see Christ. And of course, we rejoice in that very fact. I think, I think it's important that we just, for a moment, we just set the context of this account and the finding of this young Egyptian in the field. David, at this particular time, had been in a place where he'd been in disobedience to the Lord. He was away uh, from his home city of Ziklag. And David here was going to learn a very important lesson. It's a, it's a lesson that every single believer needs to constantly think and to reflect upon, and that is the need to be in the will of God, to be following the Lord, to be in the place where the Lord would have us to be. And here we find that David, upon returning to Ziklag, along with his army, they have found that Ziklag has been raided. The Amalekites have come. And not only has it been raided, but Ziklag burns and it's on fire. You can just imagine here David and his men as they are coming back to Ziklag and away there in the distance, in the horizon, they can see the smoke rising up into the sky and no doubt their hearts would sink within them. They would be thinking about their families, about their loved ones, about the city and the people. And upon returning to the city, David and his men very quickly find the devastation and the destruction that had taken place. And of course that took place whenever David was away from the city. We're not having the time to go into all the, the, the background to it. But can I say that here we find that David, he sought the Lord about the matter. What to do? Now, if we were to put it in very, a very simple fashion, if, for instance, you and I were to return home when we had found that our house had been raided, our family taken away as prisoners, and they were gone, someone had come and taken them, you and I would automatically feel the need and the desire to make haste to get after them, to hunt them down, to, to recover them, and to do what we could. 
But David has learnt a very important lesson here, that being out of the will of God has consequences. There are results. And so David inquires at the Lord. He's not going to just rush out. We read about this in verse 8, or verse 7, should I say, that David said to Abiathar, the priest, Himalach, son, I pray thee, bring me thither the ephod. In verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue? Shall I overcome them or overtake them? And here we find, David just lifts his heart, Lord, what should I do? Lord, lead me, guide me, show me. What happened? He answered, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. He received instruction from the Lord, but he received the promise of God, the promise that the Lord was going to go before him, to go with him, that the Lord was going to prosper him. And he went forth, therefore, on the strength of the promise. As we look out on a world that has lost and fallen in sin, as we look out upon a nation where so many live, are living without God, without Christ, without hope in the world, praise God we can go out with the promise of God. The Lord has said that he will build his church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There are so many promises in God's word, and you and I need to go forth on the strength of those promises. David here went forth, and he did recover all. Now, he recovered not just his family, not just his possessions, not just those things that they had that were, they were robbed from, but David recovered so much more. He recovered, therefore, the intimate, close relationship and walk with God. And how vital that was, being in that place. But as they were on that journey, going, therefore, in the will of God, going forth to serve the Lord and to rescue their families. It was on that journey that they met this young man, this young Egyptian man. And here we have, I believe in this portion, a wonderful picture of the gospel. A tremendous illustration and picture of the Lord's work of salvation of what Christ is able to do and what he does in the hearts and lives of sinners who repent and come to him. Can I say that it highlights and sets before us the very fact that all that we need is in Christ. And we'll find that, and we'll see that uh, tonight as we look at this particular portion. Consider with me here, first of all, the description that is recorded. Here we're told about this young Egyptian, about this young man, and we read about him here in the verse 11. We read here in verse 11, And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. They found this young Egyptian. Now, whenever we read of Egypt in the Word of God, we find that Egypt represents the world, and that's what it's, it, it particularly displays and sets forth. Now, the Egyptians, they were polytheists. In other words, they had many national and local deities. Many of the gods that they worshipped were, in essence, a personification of things in nature, they worshipped the Nile, the sun, the moon, the stars. They had many deities. The Egyptian life, therefore, was one of many gods, multiple gods, many false, of course, false gods, great idolatry, great wickedness. And here was a young man that they discovered. And his life, we could say, was a life of great idolatry, a life of worship of many false gods. He did not know the Lord. He was a stranger to grace and to God. But not only was this young man a sinner, an Egyptian, 
But he was also a slave. Notice what we read here in the verse 13. David asked the question. David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? What a great question. Let me pose that question to you this evening. Who do you belong to? Who do you side with? Are you saved by the grace of God? Can you say, now I belong to Jesus. You're saved by the grace of God. Or do you belong to Satan in the world? You're not a Christian. Well, notice the response of this young man when he was asked that question. When He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. Servant to an Amalekite. He was therefore one under bondage. He was a slave. His life was not his own. He was under the dominion, the rule of his master. He belonged to another. Not only was he a sinner and a slave, but he also was sick. Notice what we read here. We read about it in the verse 12. In fact, we read about it in the verse 13, should I say. He says, he was servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me because three days are gone, I fell sick. We need to stop and consider, don't we? Here was a young man. He's a youth. He's in the prime of life. But he's ill. He was in tremendous need. We're not told his age, but we do know this. He's in youth. We're told some details about his illness. This young man told David, My master left me because three days agone I fell sick. It appears that right up until that point, he was able to serve his master, serve him well. He was in reasonable health and strength, but suddenly he becomes sick. He took ill. He was part, of course, of the army that had invaded Zechariah. He had served his master well in that raid upon Zechariah. He had been in a measure of health and strength, but suddenly things have changed. He's smitten down. He's a young man in the very prime of life. However quickly all that changed. Three days. We don't know whether it was an infection, a fever, whatever it may have been. But we do know this. He's now one in great need. How quickly life can change for any one of us. Just a moment of time. Life can change. We do not know what a day may bring forth. You do not need to be old to die. You do not need even to be ill to die. But you do need to be ready. Because death can come, of course, so suddenly. Not only a young man but in tremendous need. How do we know he was in tremendous need? Notice what we read here. We read here, he says that, that three days, he, he says, my master left me because three days are gone, I fell sick. He's not only one in great need, but he's abandoned, he's forsaken, he's alone. He's forsaken and famished. He's in tremendous need. The very fact that Verse 12 here tells us, the latter part of the verse tells us that he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three for three days and for three nights. He's at the point of death. Now the body can do without food for a period of time, but it certainly cannot do without water. 85% of our human constitution, our body, our makeup is water. We cannot survive without water. So here's a young man. He's staring death right in the face. He's in tremendous need. The Word of God is likened to 
many things during the, the summer period. I had the opportunity to, and the privilege of taking some holiday Bible clubs, vacation Bible, Bible school, you would call them, and uh, it was a wonderful privilege. And one of those times I was relating to the children about the picture of God's Word. It's like the hammer that smashes. It's like the sword that slays. And all the things that the Word of God is like. But it's like a mirror that shows. It's like a mirror. You see, whenever we look into the mirror, we see ourselves. We see ourselves as we really are. And when we look into the mirror of God's Word, we see ourselves as we truly, really are. This portion, as I consider it, I bring it before you this evening. I never read it and consider it without thinking, Lord, that was my life at one time. But then, it's a picture of the life of every Christian before conversion. You see, man stands as a sinner. Man stands as one in bondage to sin. Man stands as one in tremendous need. Not just physical, but spiritual need. Sadly, when I was growing up, I was brought up in a home where I was taught the things of God, where I was sent faithfully to Sabbath school, to Sunday school, and but sadly and tragically, I went my own direction, went my own way. I think of how that even in my tender, in my young years, I left home and went out into the things of the world, looking for life, but looking in the wrong place. Is there someone listening to me this evening, and you have been doing that very thing? You're looking for life. What's life all about? Why am I here? What's the purpose to life? And you've been turning to the things of the world. For me, it was the cigarette, then the glass of beer, the smoke of dope, and going further and further and further down the road. Looking for satisfaction, looking for fulfillment, looking for purpose, but in the wrong place. Because none but Christ can satisfy. Whenever I left home at the age of 15, and that's, that's a young age to leave home, I can remember heading down the pathway yet with my little bag, turning my head and watching my mother stand and sob and cry her heart out as her child, her young boy, left and went out into the things of the world. I think of how quickly things spiraled. You see, the devil is a master of deception. How he wants to attract and to entice and how he wants to lure. Why is it that so many people are being lured into drugs and all those vices? It's because Satan knows exactly how to cover the hook. How to attract, just like the artful, skillful fisherman, being able to present the bait and to dress it up, to make it appealing, to make it look like its substance. Is appealing. And underneath all the while there's that deadly hook and and sadly and I do regret to say that I broke my parents' hearts. Word of God says to honour thy father and thy mother and I'm so ashamed of the fact that I broke their hearts. It's nothing to be proud of. I would say young man, young woman don't break your parents' hearts. But more than that you need to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Way out into the world and the things of the world. To the point where at 19 years of age, I was very sick. I, when I look at this portion, this young man, things changed from very quickly. At 19 years of age, I had got married. My wife Linda just had 
we just had a little baby born. When she was very ill, she was, or when she was born, she was very ill, she was premature. And so one night when she was still in hospital, you've got to remember we're in her teens, living in the world. One that I, when we came back from visiting our little girl in the hospital, began to think about life. And all of the thoughts started to race around my life, or my, my mind. Look at your life, it's a mess. Look at the chaos. Look at how everything you seem to touch just crumbles and falls apart. You're the reason why there's no happiness in the home. You're to blame. You're the one that brings the problems. It's all your fault. And all of the thoughts started to go race around my mind. And I genuinely, genuinely believed it would be better for me to leave this world and to die and to ruin the lives of everybody around about me. I took a massive drugs overdose with alcohol, determined I'm going to die. God overruled. No, you're going to live. O Lord, thou hast brought up my soul from the grave. Thou hast kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pit. The folks that I work with in addiction... Most of them are on the very edge. Their next fix could be their last. The next hit, the next substance they take, launching them, taking them out into eternity. And people say to me, How do you continue that work? How do you minister to such people? It's on the basis that God is sovereign. That God is able to do the impossible and save to the uttermost. And to go forth in the promises of God. He was a young man in tremendous need. He was sick. Can I say that it is a sick person who calls for a doctor, for a physician? That's the Lord Jesus speaking to the Pharisees said. He reminded them of that very fact. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, they wouldn't acknowledge that they were sinners. They wouldn't take the sinner's place. They didn't see their need. They were filled with self-righteousness. I wonder, as you look into the mirror of God's Word tonight, do you see yourself? Yes, I'm a sinner before God. I can't save myself. I'm in bondage to my sin. And I'm in tremendous spiritual need. There is here, as we think about it, the description that is recorded, but there's also the deliverance that this young man received. Notice what it says here in the verse 11. It says, And they found an Egyptian in the field. They found him. This speaks to us about the sovereign grace of God. You see, no sinner can truthfully say that they have found Jesus Christ. It is the Lord who seeks out the sheep that was lost. You think of Adam there. Adam, where art thou? Now, the Lord knew where Adam was. Of course he did. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. But he was calling Adam to that place where Adam would stand up and Adam would recognize his sin, confess his sin, admit his sin, and turn to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ, he is a great, he is a good shepherd who seeks out the sheep that was lost. It says here that they brought him to David. They brought him to David. In this portion, we find that, as in many parts of the Old Testament, we see Christ. And David here, he's a, a wonderful, a beautiful picture of Christ, of our Savior. Can I say that as the servants of the Lord, that you and I, we are to do likewise. We are to be engaged in the Lord's business. We are to be going out actively seeking to bring men and women to Christ. Now, you could say, well, how could we do that? 
You're talking about evangelism in the streets, whatever. Well, there are many ways, but in particular, we can bring people to the Lord in prayer. One of the greatest ministries is the ministry of prayer. I say one of the greatest, it is the greatest ministry, the ministry of prayer. Sometimes folks would say to me, Brother, I appreciate the work that you do, uh, and all that I can do is pray for you. And I say, no, the greatest thing you can do is to pray. Because God answers prayer. He's a God able to do the impossible. We're to go out, aren't we, into the harvest field of this world. We're to seek men and women and to bring them to our greater David, to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to make it a matter of priority. There ought to be that interest, that concern in our souls for the salvation of others. David, as I mentioned, is a, a tremendous picture of Christ. Notice what we read here in the verse 11 in our portion. It says, And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water. I wonder how you would have felt had you have been in David's shoes. I mean, imagine somebody coming to your house, destroying your home, taking your family away, and eventually you meet up with them, the person who has carried out those acts. We would naturally expect, wouldn't we, that David would draw out his sword and that David would exact justice and put him to death. After all, he confessed to being guilty. We'd want to have the person pay for it. We'd want that pound of justice, as it were. Well, that's not how David responded here. As I said, a wonderful picture of Christ. David dealing with this young man in mercy and in grace. We would have expected David to have run him through with a sword for all that he had done. They put him to death. He didn't deserve mercy. He didn't deserve grace. And yet we find that David was kind to him. It's a picture in all of our lives in the mercy of grace of God. Of course, the, when we think of mercy and grace, mercy, the Lord not giving to us what we deserve, can I say that it's much more? God is merciful to us because of Christ. Because there... He offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. He bore the full weight and penalty of our sin. And that it is through Christ that mercy is extended to us. We are undeserving. We would have to say and confess, wouldn't we? We're not only undeserving, we don't deserve anything from God, but we're ill-deserving. In other words, we deserve to be punished. A holy God that we have sinned against, broken his laws and commandments, rebelled against. And yet, the Lord has bestowed mercy and grace upon us. This is my story to God be the glory. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. When I was 23 years of age, I mentioned having taking the, the overdose and wanting to die and the Lord keeping me alive. My life continued on for another number of years, some four years living without the Lord. You would think, wouldn't you, uh, during those years I had a lot of surgeries. I went to hospital multiple times. It was every other week for about a, that, that four-year period. Having somewhere in the region, I, I think I stopped counting somewhere 26, 27 operations, surgeries, but well in advance of double, double that. 
And you would think, wouldn't you, every time put to sleep under anesthesia, you would think about life, you would consider death. No, with anything I became harder to the things of God. And it was in hospital of August 1989, a 23-year-old man, that there I encountered the mercy and the grace of God as an undeserving, hell-deserving sinner. I was facing major surgery. I went through an eight-hour operation, seemed to be recovering, doing well. By this stage, our, our little girl, she was, what, some three years of age, and I hadn't seen much of our daughter growing up, and I'd been in hospital so much. But during that time, I'd joined with some other friends, and we'd started a, a rock band, and we were hoping to make it big. We called ourselves Sinister, which means evil. We didn't play rock music. We only played what's called black metal. Satanic music. Every word. Every line. Hatred. Blasphemy against God. There I was in hospital again. I'd taken sick, went through the operation, but I took sick again. Very suddenly I was being rushed to the emergency room. But before that, the, the consultant, the doctor who was to perform my surgery, he came to the bed. It was a Saturday morning. He'd been called in early. I was in chronic pain. I had what's called adhesions where all the organs were twisting and sticking together. And I was basically, my body was shutting down. And he came to, to get me prepped, to get me ready for the surgery. And he found me, I was lying there in the hospital bed, broken and crying and he said, Chris, what's wrong? He says, you've faced multiple surgeries. What is it that's bothering you? I said, I'm going to die. I believe I'm going to die. And I'm going to go to hell. He told me, and he shared with me the greatest news any mortal ears could ever hear. Of the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. He told me how the Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. How he went all the way to Calvary. And how he died, how he suffered there, how he paid the full price for my sin. He said, God could forgive me. This is what I said to him. I said, it's called Robert. Robert, not me. Not me. Maybe folks have lived some sort of better life, as I would put it, a clean life, but not me. I deserve to go to hell. He explained to me more of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said to me, he said, God not only says that he loves you, he's proved it. For he gave everything when he gave his son to die for you. The only way I could describe it was like my heart was just smashed into a million pieces. The only... Oh, I could understand how God was angry with me. I, I could understand how my sin deserved that I would go to hell. I could grasp that. I could understand that. The very fact that Christ loved me, died for me. 26th of August, 1989, I hadn't the strength to get out of the bed. 
I simply called upon the Lord to save me? How do I know that I'm a Christian, that the Lord saved me? Well, number one, I was there when it happened. Number two, the Word of God tells me so. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do I know? You ask my wife. She will tell you that day she got a new husband. Here's the reality. Sadly, she needed one. Here was this young man at the very point of death. He had robbed David. He had done despite to him. And yet, whenever David caught up with him and found him, David bestowed mercy and grace to him. It speaks to us here. I'm going to move on for the sake of time. But the very fact that here we have the sufficiency of Christ presented to us. How do we, how do we see that? Verse 11. We read here, They found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat. And they made him drink water. Notice what he was given. Bread and water. Can we plainly say that's all the body needs? All that our human body, our constitution needs to survive is bread and water. It's a picture of Christ. All that we need is Christ. He's all that we need. He's everything. The Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. Can I say, if you're living without God, without Christ, without hope in this world, all you need is Jesus Christ. He is that living bread. He's that living bread come down from heaven. He is that well of salvation. You'll never thirst when you partake of that fount. It also speaks to us not only of the sufficiency of Christ, but of the superabundance of Christ. Notice what we read here in verse 12. So they give him the bread, they give him the water. Verse 12, here is David, and they give him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. He didn't just receive bread and water. <laughs> he received so much more. Oh, so much more. He brought me into his banqueting house. His banner over me is love. And how the Lord not only meets the need, but all oh, the Lord through Christ blesses us above all measure. What a saviour we have. What a gospel. What a message. The description that's recorded. The deliverance he received. But I want you to consider here his declaration and resolve. You see, there was a true work of repentance wrought within the young man's heart. Notice what we read here in the verse 14. Whenever David asked him the question, to whom belongest thou? Notice what he said. He said, We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongeth unto Judah, upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Zechrag with fire. We he realized his sin, his own nature. You see, you can't be saved without, first of all, recognizing, understanding your own personal need of God's salvation. That God is holy, that man is sinful, that our sin has separated us from God. We stand in need. To cry out like David did, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and, done, sinned and done this wickedness, this evil in thy sight. Sir James Simpson was a scientist, a man who discovered chloroform, colorless, odorless liquid, used as a general anesthetic. Whilst that distinguished scientist lay on his, what proved to be his deathbed, it was during that time of his final illness, that some folks visited him, including a, a young man, a young friend. And he came to Sir James and he said, Sir James, of all the discoveries that you have made in life, which would you declare and say to be the greatest? No doubt he was thinking of the discovery of chloroform. Sir James Simpson turned to that young man and he said, Young man, the greatest discovery I've ever made, it, made in life, 
took place on Christmas Day, 1861. That day, I discovered that I was a sinner. That day, I discovered there was only one Savior. That day, I discovered the joy of God's forgiveness, God's salvation. That's the greatest discovery any person can make in life. Have you made that discovery? There was certainly a regret for this young man's life and for his sin. You see, there are people today who are conscious that they're sinners, they're conscious that they've done wrong, but there's no remorse. There's no shame for their sin. They even boast how wicked a life they have lived, how vile they are. Prisons today are filled with people incarcerated who would admit that they've done wrong. But they have no remorse or shame, no regret for their actions. Perhaps the greatest regret they have is the fact that they were caught. Look at verse 14. The young man here said, we made an invasion. We burned Zechariah. Whenever David asked him the question, to whom belongs that, he's basically saying, David, hands up. I'm the man. I'm guilty of all this wrongdoing against you, David. But you see here his repudiation of sin, his turning away from sin, his turning away from that life to a new life, a forsaking of his sin, a total transformation. Whenever the Lord saved me, I can tell you all things were made new. The change is real. I would encourage you to take the, the booklet on alcohol to read it. And uh, it's a subject that I'm very passionate about. And I've often said that when I came home from hospital as a new Christian, the first place that I came to in, in our house was I went into the kitchen area. I, I went to the refrigerator and I lifted out the bottles of alcohol. There were the bottles of spirits. I could name you the brand. They were peach snaps. I remember taking the, the bottles filled and going over to the sink and pouring each one down and one after the other, just emptying them out. Why? Because of any man being Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new and all things are of God. Nobody came to me and said, a Christian shouldn't drink alcohol. Born again of the Spirit of God. That was my old life. I had witnessed the destruction. I wanted to turn away from it. That new desire. Here we read, in, and just with this I, I finish, but in verse 15 and verse 16, we see the desire of this young man to turn away from that old life. To repent. Notice what we read here. David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, notice what he said, Swear unto me by God, promise, thou wilt neither kill me, nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. David, you promise me, promise me. I'm not going back. I've witnessed how my old master treated me. How that when I'd served him, when it came to the point of need, he just left me to die like an animal, to die like a dog in the dust. You see, that's the value the devil puts in every life. That life is worthless, life is meaningless, life has no purpose, life has no value. That's the value the devil puts in a life. Jesus Christ said, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The soul of man is so valuable, so precious. Doesn't want to go back. Then we read here in the verse 15 or 16, should I say. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing. 
because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And there was this young man, he brought David. And he says, David, there you are. There they are. They're eating, they're drinking and dancing. But David, that's not my life anymore. I'm not going back to that life. He had a new master. One who treated him with mercy, with grace, with kindness. One who bestowed upon him so much goodness. What does it mean to be a Christian? Absolutely everything. But this young man, I want you to to realize in closing, just with this thought, there was something that he had to do. Something he had to do. Notice what we read here in the verse 11. Here's this young man at the very point of death and great need. We read there that they give him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. I notice these words. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him. He had to partake. You see, it's not enough to know that Christ is the way of salvation and the well of eternal life. It's not enough to have a head knowledge By faith, you need to come to Christ and trust Christ. You need to rest in Christ and turn away from sin and embrace Jesus Christ. Partake of the one who alone is the bread of life. Aren't you glad tonight as a believer you can say, Oh, I've tasted, I've seen that the Lord is good. Praise the Lord for his goodness. My heart and in my life. I trust that we will be encouraged tonight. Encouraged to pray. Encouraged to labor. Encouraged to keep on, keeping on and going on. God is a people he will redeem, he will save. But the Lord would desire that you and I would go out and we would seek to win and to bring men and women to our greater David to Christ. And oh, that our lives will be transformed for one reason, for one purpose. The glory of God. You could imagine the others in the camp why has this young man been spared? Why has he been allowed to live? Because David has chosen to be merciful to him and extended grace. How blessed, how truly blessed we are to have Christ as Saviour the knowledge of sins forgiven, the assurance it's well with our soul. But our prayer is, our desire is, that others would come to know our Lord. May God bless his word to all of our hearts this evening, for Jesus' sake.